0: From the book of Genesis, on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Well, good morning. I have a question for you today. I've been thinking about this. I wonder how many people actually look forward to Lent. Anybody? I mean, do the kids ever say, Mom, I can hardly wait for Lent to start, right? You don't have big Lent parties. You know, you don't have a... The idea being, most people think of Lent as kind of a drag, kind of a downer. In fact, most times in Lent, we give up things things which we enjoy. Uh, A good friend of mine actually decided to give up beer for Lent, and I thought, well, man, that might be cutting it a little close. Uh, But we'll see. Uh, You know, in some ways, Lent is kind of like a story that someone once said to me about a father who observed his young son in the back of the sanctuary looking at a plaque on the wall. And his son see, dad sees his boy looking at this plaque and the father went over and leaned up next to him and the boy said, hey dad, uh, what's the plaque for? And the father replied, son, that was put up in the memory of all those who died in the service. And he turned to his dad and he said, 8 o'clock or 10 o'clock? <laughs> That's the feeling we have of Lent, right? That it's kind of a drag, we kind of, it's kind of an ordeal. We deal with it, but quite frankly, we're, we're really looking for Easter. It's sort of, Lent is sort of the pre-Easter, the pre-game show. And I want to I change that for you a minute. And I want to challenge you with something a little different. Because if you did do anything special for Lent, like give up beer or give up chocolate or whatever it is, you know, whatever you've decided to do, by now, if you're honest, you're probably not doing it anymore, right? <laughs> I mean, the original Ash Wednesday, you know, yeah, I can do this, right about the second or third week of Lent, that begins to sort of fail, and our, and our, our initial vigor sort of wears off more quickly than the ashes that we actually received on our foreheads. And you begin to realize something, at least, at least I do, that, uh, that I'm a failure. <laughs> When, that when it comes to Lent, no matter how hard I try, and I try hard, right? No matter how hard I try, I fail. And actually, I think that's the entire point. Now, if that sounds weird to you, stay with me, because I think that's the entire point of Lent, to learn how to fail well. Because as we've been saying in the past couple of weeks, life, life is indeed about suffering and struggle, Amen. I mean, it's good. It's not always bad. You know, the paths sometimes lose. That's a good thing. Uh, But, you know, life is actually struggle and suffering. And so Lent actually teaches us where do we get the strength and the courage to deal with life when we fail because we will. And a bigger question, which I've been thinking about this past week, is even a little more profound. Why doesn't God just give up? You ever wonder that question? You know, if you think about it, the world is a really pretty miserable place sometimes. we got people shooting up mosques in New Zealand. you got all, all sorts of things, right? Turn on the news, man. It's just out there. Why doesn't God just say, you know what, man? I'm just, I'm, I'm done. I'm cashing in the chips. I'm finished. Just, I'm just going to, why doesn't God just nuke the whole fallen world thing and start again? He's done it before, <laughs> Noah, right? You know that story. He's done it before. And in fact, even on a smaller scale with, with uh, Sodom and Gomorrah or Jericho or whatever, the Lord is not hesitant to start all over again. So the question is this at least this is kind of bugging me. If he's God, which he is, and he's under no obligation to me or you, if we, listen, here's the, here's the thing for today. If we can't keep our promise, why does he keep his? You ever wonder that? It's not just because he's a great, big, kindly grandfather in the sky. The reason why he keeps his promises, even though you and I can't, is a lot more profound and might even surprise you where that comes from. And we're going to dive into that question. Why is God faithful even when we are not? And we're going to dial in on Genesis chapter 15 in the story of Abram and God. And we're going to look at three points. We're going to look at God's plan, God's promise, And God's offspring why does God keep his promise even when we fail because of his plan his promise and the really cool thing his Offspring So let's look at let's look at this this idea of a plan and I want to dial in for a second on this guy named Abram who later on his name is changed to Abraham. He's pretty famous, right? Everybody loves Abraham But you know the one thing you may not realize is Abram is really kind of a nobody last week in Genesis chapter 12, we said that, uh, that Abram was a wandering Aramaean. What does that mean? It means that Abram is a blue-collar guy from a blue-collar town. And quite frankly, Abram just doesn't really matter. Except that God called him. And God called Abram and said, Abram, Abram, whoo-hoo. Oh, yep, Abram, I got He says, Abram, I want you... Listen to this. Abram, I want you to go from your country and your kindred, and your father's house, and, all the, and everything you have, I want you to leave it all, Abram, and I will show you a new place, and I will make you a great nation. Now let me just stop there for a second. Say that happened to you, right? Because what God requires Abram to give up is land and family and everything that Abram used to his, his sort of self, his sense of identity, who he is, right? What if God called you to leave everything that actually makes you, you? What if God called you to leave something behind, which is something that you cling to for your own sense of identity? Here's the question, and it's a biggie. Would you do it? Well, because see, fundamentally, what God is asking Abram to do, and he's asking you too, is where, where is your, where's your gut? where's your core is your gut with me god or is your gut with is your identity found in the things of this world and if you're like me and you are if god really called you to something which totally required you to rethink your your matrix you'd probably make up make an excuse right but abram abram actually trusts god it's pretty astounding i'll get to that in a minute And in case you're wondering, well, you know, Abram, yeah, but he was a holy guy. You know, Abram was God's favorite. Not so much. Abram isn't a particularly holy guy. In fact, (laughs) later on, when Abram and his wife Sarah are uh, arrested by Egypt, the Egyptians, um, Abram stands there and defends his wife. Leave your hands off my wife. That's my wife. No, he doesn't do that. Abram says, hey, uh, she's not my wife at all. She's my sister, and you can have her. The point is, Abram is not a moral guy. He's not an example in that sense. But what he does do, listen, is he hears God's call and he does it. And the plan, point number one, the plan goes like this. God says, Abram, I got a plan for you. All right, God, what is it? Well, I'm going to make you, I'm going to give you so many kids more than the number of stars in the sky. Now, there's a bit of a problem. Abram is 86 years old, and Abram is married to a woman who is also 86 years old. And not only that, his wife has never been able to have children. So, what God is calling Abram to do is actually biologically and physically impossible. So, when God says, Abram, I'm sending you out, and I'm going to make up so many of your kids, you won't know what to do with it. You'll be like the old woman in a shoe. You'll have so many kids around. And Abram goes, even though it's physically impossible for that to occur. But this is where I want to challenge you today, and I want to move on. That God, listen, God will always call you to a plan that you cannot possibly do on your own. Always. God will always call you to do something that you cannot do on your own. In my own life, I've told you this before. Before I went to seminary, before I was ordained a priest, I was terrified to speak in public. Terrified. And I was shy, yes. <laughs> but this is the entire point, you see. When God calls you, he also equips you. Just the other night, give you another one. Just the other night, we had our, our small group study, or our, our lecture, rather, on C.S. Lewis's book, The Problem of Pain. It was, everybody loved it. They were clapping, they were cheering. The lecture was phenomenal. Anyway, I'm exaggerating a little bit. But someone said to me, And after, before we sat down, after we had dinner and before we sat down, someone said to me, you know, um, she's pretty new to the parish. And she said, you know, I hear about the split, which is back in 2008. She said, and people were really upset by that. I said, yes, they were. I wasn't here. And she said, you know, but if that hadn't happened, I wouldn't be here. And I said, you know what? If that hadn't happened, I wouldn't be here either. And she said to me, you know, isn't it amazing how God has this plan, and we're part of it. And even in the midst of suffering and struggle and brokenness, which the world is full of, God has a plan, and friends, you and I are part of it. And it's always something you can't do on your own. It's always something which requires you to lean on him. So here's the question. Where is God calling you now? Maybe, and it can be anything, and you know what it is, but where's he, what's he calling you to do something right now that's really kind of impossible? And maybe and it can be anything. Maybe it's, maybe it's trying to heal an old relationship that's gone sour. Maybe it's trying to uh, be a better father or mother for your children, maybe it's better to be a better husband or wife. Maybe it's to forgive someone with whom you've had a grudge and you just can't stand. <laughs> it may be impossible for you, no doubt. But Jesus says in Matthew chapter 19, nothing, nothing, no thing is impossible with God. All he requires you to do is trust him. Abram was not a holy guy. He was not a holy roller. But what Abram did do is when God called him, he did it. Your job, friends, with God is to hear the call and then just do what he says. So Abram hears God's plan and he responds to it despite the fact that all the evidence lies to the contrary. And this is my second point. God, as, as, as Abram leans out and begins to trust God, he begins to see God's promise. Point number two. When Abram says, all right, Lord, I'll do it, Abram, God does something absolutely remarkable. He tells, now again, none of you probably understood any of this, but I'm going to explain it to you. God says, Abram, go out and find a heifer three years old, and a goat and some other stuff, birds and things, whatever. And this is not a barbecue, right? <laughs> this is not a, he says, Abram, take these animals and take them out, and I want you to cut them in half. And uh, he wants you to cut them like if you took a, I don't know how you would do this, but you take, you take a cow and you cut it this way. I guess it's lateral, right? This way. Take it and lay the pieces on the ground. God says, Abram, take care of that. And what does this mean? Well, say say you were a fourth century BC king, and you wanted to make a covenant or a treaty with another fourth century BC king, and you decide to make a military alliance with king such and such, right? And so you go to the other king, and you say you make your pledge of support to him, and what you would do is take an animal as a pledge of your treaty, you would cut it laterally, And you would lay the halves out on the ground and then both of you would take turns so you got a dead cow on the front here you would take a turn walking through the middle of the cow king number one does and then you come back and then king number through king number two walks through the same half of the cows again and the imagery here is critical it's called a hittite vassal treaty if you're curious because when each king passes through that dead animal, what each king is saying, listen, 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 is I will give my life to keep my promise. When each king walks through that cow, what he's saying, if I betray my covenant to you, listen, you can do to me what we have done to that animal. By walking through each, about the half of those, those that, cow laid on the ground, each king, each person in the covenant is saying, I will die to keep my promise to you. Now ordinarily, both parties walk through, pledging death over abandonment. But look again at the text closely, now that you know what's going on here. If you look at the text closely, you'll see that Abram falls into a trance, into a, a tra- or sleep, and then he sees this vision, and what he sees as he wakes up, he sees a flaming torch pass through the halves, passing between the halves of this slain animal. But Abram never does it. Do you see the point? God is promising Abram, listen, Abram, I will die for you. I will die for you, Abram and your people, whether you keep your end of the covenant or not. Remember and when I started this sermon I asked you a question about Lent. And I said, why does God keep his end of the bargain? Keep his end of the promise, keep his end of the covenant, whatever you want to call it. Even when we fall short, why does he do it? Why doesn't God just throw in the towel? just obliterate the universe and start all over, that's what I would do. If we, if we, because of our sins, cannot keep our end of the bargain, why does he? And this leads me to my final point, Adam's offspring. Look again at that text. This is super profound. In Genesis chapter 15, we read that God passes through the halves of this animal. Abraham do, Abram does not but listen to this. Look at it again. God promises Abram his offspring. And then he says, Abram, I am making a covenant with you. Verse 18. On that day, I made a, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, to your offspring I give this land. Here's the hook. That word for offspring is singular. It doesn't mean his kids. It means God is making a covenant with Abram and somebody else, an offspring from Abraham. Paul, St. Paul notices this in Galatians chapter 3, verse 15, and verse 16, excuse me, and Paul says this. Now the promises, the covenant, were made to Abraham and his offspring. This is Paul. Paul continues, it does not say, and to offsprings, as though many, but to offspring, referring to one, here's the zinger, who is Christ. See, the covenant isn't between God the Father and Abram at all. The covenant is between God the Father and God the Son. The covenant and Abram doesn't know this yet. The covenant is between God and his people is between God the Father and this offspring, this singular individual who we find later on, fast forward 4,000 years, and we see a man who does in fact die to keep his end of the bargain. We see a God who does in fact die to keep his promise. On a hill outside of Jerusalem, 4,000 years later, Jesus Christ, the offspring, is stripped naked, tortured, not for his own sin, but for yours and for mine. Just as God had said, he would die to keep his end of the promise. And so the reason that Lent is so profound, man, is not to beat yourself up and not to sort of, you know, poor me. No. No. It's to be brutally honest with yourself and say, you know what, I'm a sinner and I can't save myself. Full stop. Amen? The reason that God is patient and merciful with you and me, the reason that he keeps his covenant when I crash and burn, the reason that God is merciful with me even though I am a sinner, the reason that I have any chance at all, friends, is because the covenant isn't with me at all, but with Jesus who keeps it in my place, who dies to keep that covenant, that promise, who dies to keep the rules and pay for my sins in my place. Do you see it? That's why Lent is awesome. It's a reminder that even though we struggle, even though we suffer, our strength is in him because we know that the battle is already won. My sins are already paid for if I lean upon him and ask him to save me. And this is why, friends, this is the only reason why God persists with me. Because even though we fall short, even though we lack faith, even though we doubt, even though we suffer, even though we struggle, our relationship with God is not based on our performance, but on Jesus, who kept the covenant and the promise in your place and in mine. You know, lots of people wrestle with stuff. Anybody here? (laughs) Lots of people wrestle with anxiety or worry or fear. Well, it's all fear, but this is the surface things. Or you wrestle with guilt or you wrestle with anger or you wrestle with self-doubt or you wrestle with why me or you wrestle with insecurity or deep down you wonder to yourself, do I really matter? Can I give you some pastoral advice today as your priest? Just stop it. Just stop that. Jesus came to earth to die on the cross to keep all that in your place. He came, on the, came to earth and died on the cross to take all that trash from you and put it upon himself. Read the first hymn. It's all there. Let him have it. This is how, this is how you suffer and struggle well. This, friend, is how you get strength and courage to move forward even when you fail, even when life is really hard. Because Jesus died to take these things from you. So for God's sake, let him. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you for the plan which you have laid on our lives, and most importantly, for the promise you give to us to keep your covenant with Jesus, who dies and keeps it in our place. Lord, make this Lent to be one of acknowledging our own brokenness, our own shortfalls, but more importantly, to be thankful to Jesus who came to earth to save us from it. In his name we pray. Amen.